Good morning. We are in the middle of a study together as a church this year uh, through the Gospel of Mark, uh, one of the four biographies of Jesus in the, in the New Testament. And here at West Hills, um, we believe that uh, what we need even more than topical messages on the most relevant issues of our day are the timeless truths of Scripture that transcend whatever um, current events happen to be dominating today's news cycle. And so even though this morning's passage from Mark chapter 3 on the unforgivable sin is not exactly the lightest and breeziest of topics to preach when we were expecting uh, a lot of new visiting families from VBS and and otherwise, uh, I'm just going to trust that the Lord has you here for a reason this morning and has us in this passage in our study through Mark for a reason and that someone here needs to hear this particular message on this particular week um, from this particular text. So let's dive right in. A lot of good stuff to get to here uh, in Mark chapter 3. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word? Mark 3, we'll actually start back up um, to verse 20 and go through verse 30. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, no worries. Uh, It will be on the screen uh, up front here for you. So... I'll read it for us, Mark 3. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he has cast out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear from you this morning. We want to hear from you this morning. God, would you, as you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, inspired and illuminated the authors of your Holy Word, John Mark, uh, we pray that now you would come be with us and Likewise, inspire and illuminate our hearts, our eyes, our minds, our ears to see, to hear, to perceive Jesus and the good news in your text, in your scripture this morning. Father, would you touch hearts, draw hearts to you like only you can. We'll give you All the glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So I've got uh, three simple overarching points for us this morning, if you want to jot them in your bulletin and then backfill your notes. Three overarching points. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Number two, he forgives sins. And number three, he forgives sins, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Baths, of course, does not refer here to Jesus' condemnation of a nice soak in the tub after the end of a long day, but rather, I'll use baths up on the screen as my shorthand designation for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We can't get this back monitor working, can we, Taylor? Okay. Uh, Point number one, Jesus is Lord. Look with me back at verses uh, 20 through 27. Many think that this passage from Mark 3 uh, was the catalyst for C.S. Lewis's now famous apologetic for the Christian faith known as the trilemma. Here again is how C.S. Lewis articulated it. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come at him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. And so according to Lewis, the trilemma here, the three options that Jesus has left open to us are that he is one, a lunatic, two, a liar, or three, that he is actually the Lord God of all the universe. And those are the exact same three options, approaches to Jesus that we see evidenced in this morning's passage. So read back with me starting in verses 20 and 21. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus' own family here thought he was a lunatic. We know from John 7.5 and Acts 1.14 that until his resurrection, not even his brothers believed in him. They thought he was out of his mind. The Greek word for seize there in verse 21 literally means to kidnap, to take by force. Jesus' family wanted to have him locked up in a padded room because they thought he was a danger to himself and to others. He was so obsessed with his mission that he wouldn't even stop to eat. They were worried Jesus was going to starve himself to death. Not unlike my own mother when she comes to visit St. Louis monthly. It gives my poor wife such grief. Don't you ever feed him anything? <laughs> I have to assure her, God just blessed me with the spiritual gift of an amazing metabolism. So I promise I eat more than all of you. Um, but they're concerned here with more than just Jesus' physical health. I think they're worried about Jesus' teaching as well, the content of his teaching. Jesus, we love you, but this has gone far enough. 
We all laughed at you when you claimed to be the Messiah, when you were a little boy growing up, because that's what little kids do. It's cute when they pretend to be superheroes, but you're 30 now, and it's not cute anymore. It's dangerous. Next, we hear from the scribes. Family thought he was a lunatic. The scribes postulate he's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Interestingly, the religious leaders don't deny Jesus' supernatural power. In Matthew's parallel account from his gospel, uh, this interaction occurs just after Jesus has healed a blind, mute, demon-possessed man right in front of their very eyes. So they can't deny his supernatural power. Rather, the scribes attribute it to a different source. He's satanic. He's not out of his mind. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he is a liar from the pit of hell. He claims to have power from God, but his power is actually from Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, the Prince of Demons, the devil himself. Here is Matthew's version of Jesus' full response. Mark omits some of the details, but here's what Matthew tells us. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house... Divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed... He may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And in those six verses, I think we find six claims from Jesus to his own divine lordship. First, Matthew told us in verse 25 that Jesus knows their thoughts, but only God can read minds. Only God can read hearts. Jesus is God. He's Lord. Second, Jesus reasons with them. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. He says, your theory that I'm from Satan doesn't make any sense. The Blues weren't winning any Stanley Cups back in January when they were fighting themselves in the clubhouse. A team divided against itself isn't a team you have to worry about. Just let them beat themselves. Jesus says, if Satan was fighting himself, he wouldn't still be so alive and well in the world, wreaking havoc. No, Satan's house is not divided. I'm from a different house. I'm playing for a different team. I'm on God's team. And third, Jesus turns the tables on them in verse 27. He says, speaking of teams, by whom do your sons cast out demons? If we're going to start stoning all the exorcists around here, we better round up your rabbis and your prophets as well. See, exorcism was a fairly common practice in the first century Judaism. In fact, we hear in Mark 6 that some people, like King Herod, when they heard that Jesus was exercising demons and performing miracles, they thought that John the Baptist or Elijah had been raised from the dead. And so Jesus, in effect here, is asking them, you going to stone John the Baptist, Elijah? Were they demon-possessed? Fourth, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. When he's asked in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel whether he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus responded, the blind receive their sight, 
the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. In other words, the proof's in the pudding. Judge for yourselves. Look around you. Obviously, the kingdom of God is upon you. You just watched me heal a blind, mute, demon-possessed man. The proof's in the pudding. I've proved to you that I am Lord and God. Fifth, Jesus argues that in order to defeat Satan, you've got to first bind the strong man. In other words, if I'm successfully casting out demons, then my power must be greater than that of Satan's, and the only one whose power is greater than that of Satan's is God. I'm from God. Lastly, Jesus claims, whoever is not with me is against me, and this is perhaps the most subtle but the most bold of all Jesus' pronouncements of his own divine lordship. Can you imagine if I stood up here this morning and said, unless you follow my preaching, my teaching, we're enemies. You're either with me, Will, or against me. Everyone who attends a church other than West Hills be damned. Can you imagine? And this is the stuff of cults, unless he's actually Lord. The kind of exclusive claim that only God has the right to make. And yet it's the kind of claim that we see Jesus making time and time again throughout the Gospels to exclusivity. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not a way, not one way amongst others, not one truth amongst many options, not my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. I'm the way, the truth, the life, exclusive, absolute, universal claims. Matthew 10, 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's my way or the highway. I'm either your Lord or I'm nothing to you at all. If you love yourself more than me, if you love your way more than mine, if you won't repent and take up your cross to follow me instead, I can't do anything for you. Find a different Messiah. Let your mother and father be your Lord and Savior. See how that works for you. Let your spouse be your Lord and Savior. How's that working for you? Let your kids find your meaning and your purpose and your self-worth, your identity, your validation, your hope, your joy in anything and anyone other than me and let me know how that works out for you. And friends, on a personal note, from someone who tried that for the first 27 and a half years of my life, I looked to my parents I looked to my own self-achievement, intellectual accomplishment, athletic performance, social status, to pleasure, to hedonism, to friendships, to romantic relationships, to philosophical exploration, to other religions, to career and success, back to family again. As someone who lived most of my life desperately trying to find my worth everywhere and with everyone other than Jesus, I would just love to save you a lot of time and a lot of heartache this morning and try and convince you that you will not find it anywhere but in Jesus. Our hearts are made for him, made to find their fulfillment in him. And the question facing you and me this morning was the same question facing Jesus' family in Mark 3, 
facing the scribes, facing C.S. Lewis, facing every person who has ever or will ever live on this earth, the most important question in all of history, what will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? Will you, like his family, shut him up for a fool? Will you, like the scribes, regard him as a demonic liar, or will you fall at his feet and call him Lord and God? Those really are the only three options. And if you've been dodging that all-important question for too long now, trying to delay having to give your answer, let me just gently but lovingly and adamantly plead with you this morning, don't wait another minute. Don't wait, because you're not guaranteed it. Polly and I sang at the funeral this past week of a 20-year-old girl. We are not guaranteed our next life, our next day, our next breath in this life. Don't wait. Why would you want to? If Jesus really is Lord, if our lives really are gifts from him for the purpose of bringing glory to him, then it only makes sense that we'd want to go all in for him as soon as possible. Don't waste another day. He's worth it. He's good. Because point number two, Jesus forgives sin. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, all sins, friends, all sins. You cannot outsin God's grace. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Listen, we haven't even defined what the unforgivable sin is yet, but let me just tell you what it's not, okay? The unforgivable sin is not murder. It's not genocide. Adolf Hitler might be in heaven right now, for all we know. Can you believe that? There's not another religion in the world whose God is that forgiving and gracious. Remember what Jesus prayed for his own murderers, his crucifiers while he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What could be worse than killing Jesus? And yet he prays, forgive them, Father. Even they, even Hitler, isn't beyond the pale of God's forgiveness, possibly. What's the worst sin you can think of? What's the worst sin you've committed? Hear the good news this morning, friends. All sins will be forgiven. God is holy. You are sinful and deserving of eternal condemnation. But Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for every sin you have ever or will ever commit against a perfect, righteous, holy God. And if you will but call on him, on his name, on the name of Jesus, Romans 10, 9, put your faith and your hope in him, Ephesians 2, 8, your sins will be forgiven and you will be saved. That's good news. All sins will be forgiven, but one. 
This brings us to point number three. In some ways, the most important point for us this morning. Yes, Jesus is Lord, and yes, he forgives us our sins, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is the unforgivable sin. If that sounds serious, it's because it is. And if blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is really that heinous, that egregious, then you and I had better make darn sure that we know what the heck it is. So I want to leave you with three things to chew on with our final point here, number three. Number one, a definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Number two, supporting evidence from Scripture of that understanding. And number three, I want to leave you with two personal application points, an assurance as well as a warning. So first, a definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think one way of beginning to identify the sin that cannot be forgiven is to recognize that there's at least one sin that is not forgiven. So I've already shared with you the good news, the gospel, straight from Scripture, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10.9. That is by grace, through faith, you have been saved, Ephesians 2.8. But that means that failing to confess him with your mouth, failing to believe in your heart, failing to accept Christ's grace through faith leaves one without salvation. And that means there's at least one sin that is not forgiven, the sin of unbelief. But what Jesus makes clear here in Mark 3 is that it's not just unbelief. Listen to what Jesus says In Matthew's version of the passage, chapter 12, verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, can be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, you can reject even Jesus and still be eventually forgiven, later forgiven. I rejected Jesus for 27 and a half years, and I've been forgiven, praise the Lord. What you cannot do is to reject the Holy Spirit. Why? Here's how John Piper explains it. He's smarter than me, so. Why only blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think it's because of the unique and decisive role the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation. If we look to God the Father and then turn from his glory to embrace sin, that is bad. If we look to his son Jesus Christ, whom he sent into the world, and then turn away from his glory to embrace sin, that is doubly bad. But in either case, there is hope. The Father has planned redemption, and the Son has accomplished redemption. This wonderful redemption is outside ourselves and available to us if we repent of our sin and turn back to Christ in faith. But it is the unique and special role of the Holy Spirit to apply the Father's plan and the Son's accomplishment of it to our hearts. It is the Spirit's work to open our eyes, to grant repentance, to make us beneficiaries of all that the Father has planned and all that Christ has done for us. So if we see and taste the power of the Holy Spirit and still reject his work, we shut ourselves off from the only one who could ever bring us to repentance. And so we shut ourselves off from forgiveness. So here's my definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for you. 
I think blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is having had your spiritual eyes opened by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to behold the beauty and the truth of Jesus and his gospel, the depths of your sin, the heights of God's holiness, and the lengths to which Jesus went to reconcile you back to God, and yet still refusing to trust in him for salvation. It is looking Jesus square in the eyes with the scales having fallen off your spiritual eyes and still saying, no thank you. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not just unbelief. It is a conscious, informed, Holy Spirit-illuminated rejection of Christ. As Kent Hughes explains, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a sin which requires knowledge. It is significant here that the scribes are the target of Jesus' warning because they of all people should have known better. They knew the law and the prophets and the messianic promises better than anyone. They of all people should have known better than to reject Jesus. Here's how other commentators define blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Piper, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. Kent Hughes, the ongoing continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit, whether that witness be a quiet witness in the conscience, a rational witness from God's word, or even miracles and wonders. Mark Strauss, a defiant, willful, final rejection of the Spirit's work in a person's life. If that person intentionally turns to darkness at the moment of greatest light, by definition, no greater opportunity for salvation will ever take place. There is no greater source of revelation than the Holy Spirit and no other means through which people respond to God. Picking up on a theme here. John MacArthur, being fully exposed to the truth of the gospel and yet walking away from Christ in spite of the overwhelming evidence you have been given. At its heart, apostasy is a willful repudiation of the Holy Spirit's testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then, describes the apostate heart that with full knowledge has irrevocably rejected the one to whom the Spirit points. That is why it is an eternal sin, because no forgiveness is possible for those who refuse to stop rejecting Christ. Finally, Andrew LePeau, the sin against the Holy Spirit is the sin of unbelief, of apostasy, of utter rejection of God, of defiant sin. And we see this borne out in Scripture as well. I want to give you just four passages from God's Word that corroborate this kind of understanding of the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. First, Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 through 31. We won't read this whole one together, but you can jot that down, go back and read it later on your own research. Numbers 15 makes an explicit distinction between two types of sin. There is unintentional sin, and then there is sin with a high hand. In other words, conscious, defiant sin. And it is telling that in Numbers 15, in the Old Testament law, God outlines no sacrifice. There is no atonement 
for the latter category of sin, for looking God square in the face and saying no thanks, spitting in his face, cannot be forgiven. Next, we turn to the New Testament, 1 John 5.16. John instructs us, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should even pray for that. So John says, don't even bother praying for someone who has committed the unforgivable sin. If someone has truly beheld the beauty and truth of the gospel and hardened their heart, shut out the Holy Spirit's work, rejected Jesus anyways, there can be no forgiveness for their sin. Third, Hebrews 2, verses 1 and 2. Here, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great witness of salvation? In other words, it's one thing to die never having even heard the name of Jesus, but it's a whole other thing to have not only heard of Jesus, but to have personally experienced his goodness his mercy, his love, and to have fallen away from the faith. Similarly, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, our last passage, for it is impossible, impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them once again to repentance since they are cru- crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So I want to conclude with two personal application points. First, a word of assurance. And to be clear, you, you only, you're one of two types of people here this morning and you only need to hear one of these two application points. Some of us need to hear this word of assurance. If you're here this morning and you have ever lost sleep over this passage from Mark 3, which we all should have, about the unforgivable sin and wondered if it's possible that perhaps at some point in your life, in your wild, rebellious, pre-Jesus former life, or maybe even since then, since your conversion, that you have committed the unforgivable sin and this passage frankly terrifies you a little bit. let me assure you this morning from the lips of Jesus himself all sins will be forgiven and if you've lost sleep over this that means by definition you are not hard-heartedly rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life your heart is soft you're responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart that's a good thing you have not committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit So you can leave here today in full assurance of Christ's absolute, unconditional pardon for your sin. You can nap easy today. In fact, if you continue to question your complete forgiveness and salvation after today, that would be to doubt the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for you. And this is another topic for another sermon But that Hebrews 6 passage about falling away from the faith, we believe at West Hills firmly that you can't truly lose your faith. 
The author of Hebrews there was talking to people who have, again, had their eyes open, but have not actually been saved, been redeemed, been born again. In regard to the 1 John 5 passage about not even bothering to pray for those who have committed the unforgivable sin, let me just say one more note of sort of uh, caution there as well and encourage you not to give up praying for and pleading with your lost loved ones. You may think that they've heard the gospel, that they've looked Jesus square in the face, spat, spat in his eyes, but you do not know. The Bible makes it really clear. Only God knows a person's heart. I'm sure by the time I was 27 years old, having grown up in evangelical Christianity, I had heard the gospel a thousand times already. But after God finally opened my eyes, I had moments of genuinely wondering whether or not anyone had ever truly shared the gospel with me. That's how new it felt to me. That's how lost I was without the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to open my eyes, to draw my heart to him. So you don't know for sure what God has or has not yet done in someone else's heart. Do not give up on them. Don't quit praying for them. Don't quit pleading with them. And finally, I want to end with a word of caution. If you're here this morning and you've never lost sleep over this passage, I want to gently but firmly warn you. Perhaps you truly are a believer and God has given you the spiritual gift of faith in spades such that since your spiritual rebirth, you've just never for a moment doubted your salvation or Christ's full pardon for your sins. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful for the minority of you who fit that description. But for most of those who do not and will not lose a wink of sleep over their sin, and the question of whether or not it's been fully forgiven, it's probably in most cases because they simply don't think your sin's a big deal. You think God must grade on a curve. I'm somewhere between Hitler and Mother Teresa, and so I'm just going to assume that I'm on the better half of that or wherever God draws the line. I'm good enough, whatever that means. I don't know what that would even mean to be good enough for a perfect God, a perfect heaven. Or that somehow God's mercy must trump his justice. Friends, the Bible makes it absolutely, abundantly clear. Hitler is not the standard. Your next door neighbor is not the standard. Perfection is the standard. Matthew 5, 48. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23. The wages of that sin, the wages of your sin is death. You and I rightfully deserve eternal death. And all sins will be, can be forgiven. All but one. Hebrews 3, 7, and 8 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, today, do not harden your hearts. Friends, do not harden your hearts. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. If he's doing something in your heart, even right now, this morning, today, do not harden your heart. Today could be the day of your salvation. Repent. 
turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He can do it. He wants to do it. He will do it. He will forgive. Every sin will be forgiven. All but one. Let's pray.